Section 22 of The Bookman, March 1921, by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eleanor Riley, Kalamazoo, Michigan. The Bookman, March 1921, by Various. Section 22. Woman Sees Steel by Mary Austin. Many people have been looking forward to this book of Mary Heaton Vorses for more reasons than a desire for information on the steel situation. It is the first book of importance dealing with the subjects women will have to face in their new capacity of citizenship, with a voice in its final determination. In what spirit and manner will women communicate with one another on these things? Miss Vorse is one of the investigators employed by the interchurch movement to report on the steel situation, one of the most acute industrial problems in the United States. Her experience and dependability in making such researches are sufficiently attested, and her opportunities to learn were exceptional. Everyone is familiar through the daily news with the issue of that investigation and the part it played in the check and presumably permanent overthrow of the interchurch world movement. Naturally, the question arises, what is there in the way a woman saw the situation that throws any light on the interrelations of the church and the economic and industrial world of men? From the first page of Men and Steel, which is agreeably published in a style that brings its price within all reach, one discovers a characteristic feminine directness in the approach. Mrs. Vorse went to see Steel, and that is what she saw, the whole gigantic process accepted as a fact, the way women accept things. Steel! After a little, the confused, overpowering impression resolved into elements. Smoke, fire, slack, steel towns, houses of steel workers, and finally men. Always she sees the men in little, dwarfed by the thing they serve. Always she seems them humanly. Nowhere is there any attempt to corner our sympathy for the steel workers as such, no abuse of steel owners, no discoverable bias, nothing in fact but the steady delicate stroke on stroke of a woman's seeing. She sees the sordid tenements of the river bottoms at Braddock, two-story brick houses, the courts bricked and littered with piles of cans, piles of rubbish, bins of garbage, hillocks of refuse, pale children padded in the squashy filth and made playthings of ancient rubbish. A little later, she says, what condemns them to live there is their children. The more children, the less chance of escape. Of two men she met, Milko and Pasterik. Pasterik has escaped to live in a house of his own with an outlook. Milko explains, four of his children die by diphtheria. My children, they all live. So for Milko, there is no escape. On such observed and unremarked upon incidents, Miss Vorse rests her case. It is the bright singularity of Miss Vorse's method that she nowhere attempts to do the reader's thinking for him. Neither does she make any attempt to overweight the situation in favor of the workers by playing on the reader's emotions. Here, her magnanimity toward her audience is supreme, for Miss Vorse is a literary artist, ranking high in our native galaxy. Readers of her fiction, 
know what she can do in the way of plucking at the strings of pity and rage and gaiety, but the style of men and steel is almost stark. The sentences are short, the descriptive matter reduced to a minimum, the writer's own reactions have about that relation to the narrative that the polished surface of a mirror has to the reflection in it. You may remark in passing that it is a fine mirror, but it is the reflection, after all, that claims you. There is no blurring of the lines. If she shows you the workers suffering unjustifiably under the situation, she shows them in the same stroke as rather ignorant and helpless. If she shows the owners, the burgess and the paid constabulary as prejudiced and brutal, she also shows them as resting under our general human limitation. She shows them, and this is where the book bites at last, as us. That, I think, is Mrs. Vore's final judgment on the steel situation. Both the steel strike and the manner in which it was finally worn down and stamped out, the reason why it was never intelligently adjudicated, why the germs of another greater and still more wasteful strike were simply swept into dark corners there to fester and breed, are to be found in the lack on the part of the American public of any wholesome and rectifying attitude toward it. We are either not so intelligent a public as we have liked to think ourselves, or we are more selfish and intellectually indolent. There can never be any good, sensible settlement of the steelworkers' troubles, because up to date there is a total lack of good, sensible suggestions. As a last touch, Mrs. Vorse effectively disposes of our lazy and self-exculpating way of dismissing the subject, saying, Well, if they don't like it here, why don't they go back where they came from? By showing that thousands of them ardently long to go back out of this unimagined confusion and disappointment of American industrialism, but that the conditions of the steel industry do not permit them to save the price of passage. I can offer no better evidence of the quality of Mrs. Vorse's book than the effect it has so unmistakably produced on the reviewer. Perhaps an important item of that effect is the manner in which the book has been put together. For the first time, we have a serious and dependable book on industrialism, which is not cast in the pattern laid down in the 18th century. There is in Men and Steel not a trace of the influence of the cloister or the university which has so far determined the general mode of presentation of serious subjects. The long argumentative chapter, the solid gray page, the academic insistence on a sequence of presentation which has nothing to do with the way in which facts are gleaned from life and experience, all these are banished from Mrs. Vorse's book. It proceeds by paragraphs, each with its own caption, suitably isolated from other paragraphs to which it has no relation except that they are parts of a whole. When there is no more to be said on a subject, the paragraph stops, even at the unheard-of expense of leaving the rest of the page blank. Perhaps the best way to characterize the book is to say that it is entirely feminine, recognizing that femininity in intellectual procedures is nothing to be afraid of may even have an important service to perform in releasing us from the podsnappery of the intellect. End of section 22